This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. Thank you so much for joining and tuning in to the episode today. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. And if you're a regular on our show, you'll know that we're financial advisors bringing you the latest market insights and financial strategies to consider. And in today's episode, we have a special guest joining us. We had the pleasure of sitting down early on with Damien Fox from Cathona Capital, which is an Australian venture capital firm, to chat about all things in the private markets. And as you know, Felicity, you know, it's been a really tough place to be in so far for 2022, being the listed space, the market's off drastically. So it was really interesting to hear Damien's updates and thoughts on what the heck's actually going on in the private market and how it's been faring up this year so far. And before we bring you the conversation with Damien, a bit more background for you on Carthona Capital and our special guest. So essentially, it's an Australian early stage focused venture capital fund and has been around since early 2014. Now, Damien has actually been with the company since the very beginning and was made partner in early 2022. As you'll hear in our conversation with him, he's been involved in the fund from such an early stage. He's actually been instrumental in developing Carthona's investment approach and processes and has had deep involvement across each of Cathona's portfolio investments and across all stages of their business life cycle. Notable investments that Damien has actually led at Cathona includes investments in particular audience, Cascade, CIM, Salad Technologies and SafeStack. And Damien holds a number of non-executive directorships at Cathona portfolio companies. Yeah, he's got a very impressive resume. If in fact you look them up, they're really interesting business models and I can see why he's very excited about those particular investments. In our chat today, you'll also hear Damien talk about the evolution of the business. So Cathona Capital has shifted away to more of a traditional venture capital fund structure, uh, and now it's actually in its third fund and has deployed approximately $400 million, and currently that is their funds under management. And what was interesting to hear in this particular chat is to date they've now given back to investors $70 million, so that's great to hear. Typical investors within the VC market, like this particular uh, fund, are institutional investors. He mentions, you know, Host Plus, for example, which is an Australian superannuation firm, family offices, and high net worth individuals. Cathona Capital is really known uh, for investing really in the very early startup stages. So typically businesses that Damon explains to us, these are in the pre-seed, seed or series A stages. So definitely pre-revenue. They're not afraid to look at that. They're really highly thematic in the opportunities they look to invest in and are extremely hands-on with their portfolio companies, hence why Damien holds a few non-executive roles in their investments. Now, a little reminder today, our chat is not considered personal advice, even though we're registered advisors at Shore and Partners. Please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it a financial product. 
Welcome, Damien, to Talk Money to Me. We're so excited to be speaking with you today about the VC market. Hi, Candice. Hi, Felicity. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. All right. So, let's start by explaining exactly what VC means. I mean, what is venture capital? Yeah. So, venture capital is is private capital that's invested in early stage, extremely high growth businesses. It's a form of private equity. So, typically, investors go out and raise pools of committed capital in the form of funds, which they then deploy over a period of time, pretty standard terms, a five-year investment period or a five-year management period. Um, But unlike later stage private equity, uh, we don't own a controlling stake in the business. And so we hold minority equity positions. And so to compensate for that, we usually have certain rights uh, to help protect our positions in the business. And we usually have have a board seat. Um, because we're looking to invest into incredibly fast-growing businesses, you know, these businesses are usually in sectors that, that, that can support that type of growth. And so traditionally, the two big areas that have been synonymous with venture capital are uh, technology and biotech. And so us at Cuthbert, we're very much focused on the technology part of the equation. Okay, great. That's really interesting. So a minority stake, what kind of percentage would that be then? So, you know, anything under under 50%, but, you know, traditionally venture funds hold anywhere from 5% up to up to 30%. Okay. And I guess to go back um, a step or two, can you give us a bit of background on your investment experience and the history that you've had in the VC space? And I guess why Cathona? You know, I'm sure the business has evolved over the years. Just run us through what's been going on. Yeah, sure. So we set up the firm back in late 2013, early 2014. Uh, so we're just coming up to about nine years of investing now as a group. Uh, we're in our third fund. Prior to the, our first fund, we used to invest on a deal-by-deal basis, so which we call our, our fund zero. In total now, we've backed 42 portfolio companies over you know over 100 separate investment rounds um, and returned just over 70 million of, of cash to our investors. You know, if we think back to the days when we were setting up the, the fund, if you think about, if you look at uh, the press at the moment, given how much venture capital and, and startups seem to dominate, you know, the AFR and the press, um, it's a little bit hard to imagine what it was like back then, but it was you know, incredibly, incredibly sparse. Historically in Australia, we haven't had a really strong track record of, of venture capital activity. In the 80s, there was the, the MIG program, which which led to a bunch of funds being set up in the mid-80s, but they all got wiped out in the in the 87 crash. And, and then we had the dot-com bubble bursting. Uh, and so really from the early 2000s through to, to sort of early 2010s, uh, most of that activity was, was taken up by, by family offices. And so, for us, and, and also a few other of uh, my uh, my colleagues, a few other funds that set up in that that point in time, really were, you know, at least for Australia, category creators or, or recreators. And so, you know, for us at that point in time, it wasn't really so much a question of, you know, why if you want to get get to work in a sector, you know, which fund do I want to go for? It was more a question of, of who shares the same ethos as, as you guys about investing in the space, and and you know, who do you want to work with? So yeah, so it's probably history. And your personal background, like talk us through how you how you got involved in this space. For sure. So my my background was I I, I started working at Quarry Capital. I worked in their investment banking division, both uh, in the Sydney office and the New York office, a variety of different teams, a variety of different types of transactions. But one thing that I did a, a bunch of, and you know, one of the advantages and one of the reasons I went to Macquarie was was the history of doing principal investments. Uh, and so I actually was able to luckily participate in a few you know much later stage than what we do at Carthona, but, but venture capital-like transactions, and so managed to, to build up a bit of experience there. 
when I decided to leave Macquarie, I originally thought I'd, I'd start my own tech business. Um, that was when we get funded by VCs and, and, you know, I was living in the States at the time and reached out to a colleague of mine who had done a similar thing and had previously worked at a venture fund just to try and get some, some intel about the space. And it was just purely opportunistic where he said, Hey, mate, you have to go back to Australia. Uh, my old boss from my old fund is putting together a venture fund. You'd have an opportunity to, to start from the ground up and, and set up your own venture fund in Australia. So pretty much. Flew back to Australia the next day, and and you know the rest the rest is history. The rest is history. That's really interesting. And I guess one um, quick thought, just from what you were saying there, because um, you've you've seen both sides of the equation, right? In in terms of the US market, which is very large in the VCPE space, you know, typical funds over there might put an asset allocation of like up to forty percent. But you mentioned Australia's, um, you know, it's not as a crowded space in the VC space. Why do you think that is? Why are we not as heavily invested in the VC space here in, in Australia? I think ultimately it comes down to track record. You know, I think it takes time to get the big, if you think about the investors, the LPs into venture funds, you know, these are big superannuation funds, big pension funds, um, big, big large asset managers. Uh, for them to be able to deploy decent links of capital in, into a fund, they need to see a track record, they need to see history, and they need to see cash coming out the back. And so, you know, that's something that, that all of us uh, have been very, very focused on is making sure we actually get returns. And it's not just, it's not just you know, returns on paper, it's actually cash being returned to investors. And, you know, I think we're definitely getting to the, the point at the moment where, you know, increasingly, you know, it's, it's still quite limited in the number of super funds, for example, that are they're investing in venture funds here. There's probably one major wine host plus that's been deploying the most. Um, there's probably a handful of another five that uh, that have done one or two investments in a few venture funds, but it, it certainly doesn't have the same history or you know doesn't have the same level of, of confidence that it would be uh, than if you went into the you know, East Coast or West Coast US. That's really interesting. So essentially, there's a lot of opportunity in the Australian VC market for category creators like yourselves. So there is a lot of noise in the market at the moment. Could you fill us in and, you know, what's kind of been happening in the VC Australian market over the last 12 months? How is financing, the financing landscape at the moment for early seed VC investments? Is it all risk off or do you have a lot of dry powder on the side? You know, what are investors doing at the moment? Are they investing? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, like lots of other sectors, it's been a pretty, pretty interesting twelve months to say, to say the least. I mean, if we go back to mid to late twenty twenty one, you know, money was cheap, listed equity markets were going crazy, um, and we saw a lot of often offshore, very large, big hedge funds uh, basically come in and start investing, uh, you know, this happened in the US, but but also in Australia, and this totally transformed the venture landscape at that point in time. They come in running massive checks, very, very quick very low due diligence and the effect of that really filtered down through the, the early stage funding market as well and you know increasingly saw valuations getting a little bit uh a little bit sort of out of touch and turns becoming incredibly founder friendly yeah. when the market turned basically all these big hedge funds and all the non-traditional non-professional vcs that were in the space overnight just disappeared so you know that straight away had a had an impact on on, on things but on the plus side all of the you know, inverted commas professional VC funds in Australia uh, that have raised capital over that period of time have done a pretty good job of that. It's not only the investment in good businesses, um, they've also been able to raise decent amounts of capital. And so, you know, if I think about it now, there's still plenty of, of dry powder, still plenty of capital, and, and good businesses are continuing to get funded. Okay. And what about a comment on the SPACs um, side of things? You know, do you think that's, you mentioned, you know, they quickly dried up very fast with, with the market turned. 
What do you think the future of SPACs holds? Yeah, I mean, so SPACs is a super interesting one. Obviously, it's not allowed on the ASX, but you know, it was was popular in in the US uh, and and a few in Europe as well. I mean, we SPACed one of our businesses, and that that is a, a, a US based business. You know, certainly, you know, when that was happening, we all commented to each other that this is a you know top of the market type type phenomenon. Super interesting. SPACs emerged suddenly. You know, there was a lot of demand for bringing what you know private assets that had had compared to if you look back over history and stayed private a lot longer, bringing them onto a listed market to give listed investors exposure to those type of assets. As soon as the market turned, we saw that you know pretty much all the all those SPACs which had successfully been able to acquire asset and list, most of those traded pretty poorly. Mm. Uh, and those SPACs which haven't successfully acquired an asset, those are either coming hard up on their maturity or passing maturity, and so they're under pressure to deploy capital. And and so we've seen the the fees, the, what's called the promote, um, just getting squashed massively. And this is a huge amount of activity of them aggressively looking for assets to acquire. Yeah, and I guess if you look at pretty much every market at the moment, when you look at the last twelve months for recently listed businesses IPOs, like it's rare to find one that's done well in the last twelve months because equity markets have been tough. So one thing Felicity and I keep hearing about on. Um, on our desk in day-to-day job, you know, looking after clients' wealth in the markets is that the private markets are essentially closed or locked up at the moment. Do you think that's a correct assessment from where you stand? You know, if you think about the VC part of, of, of the private markets, I'd say, yeah, and I probably disagree with that. I, you know, we certainly are still deploying capital and, you know, there's still a decent amount of, of dry powder out there. You know, having said that, if you if you're in a in a startup and you raised at the uh, the top of last year and and since then you've burned through all your cash and you haven't made sufficient progress with that cash you know you'd be pretty rich to be expecting you know, the same valuation or the same terms as the last round and so you know not all businesses are going to be able to stomach that and all physically able to make that change within the business to reduce their their burn if the if the the amount of capital available to them is is reduced um, and so those type of businesses are going to are going to struggle to get funded. Yeah, we've definitely noticed that, I think, that they can't raise at the same multiples for sure. And on the burn rate, I guess that's the big question that a lot of investors and businesses are facing because we're in a rising rate interest environment. So follow-up kind of thought process there is there's a lot of market commentary in the investment community saying that VC and private equity is a good place to kind of hide out when the markets, excuse my French, as the market, the life gets sucked out of it and the shit hits the fan. So do you think that's a, a correct assessment in that asset class? You know, is it a good place to hide out for inflation, recessionary risks and rising interest rates? So I think, you know, most of that type of commentary and that type of analysis comes from someone who, who's looking down from like an economic perspective and looking down at, at the, the, the industry as a whole in the sense that, you know, Private markets, generally speaking, you know, and uh, GFC was a, a perfect example of this. React much slower uh, to to listed markets, and you know that's both on the up and on the down. And so, and that's pretty much you know connected with the fact that private investors are, are generally long term investors, and so there isn't necessarily a public mark, you know, so to speak, or a transaction or something that's made public that someone external from it can look down and go, okay, cool, that the mark has moved, and therefore valuations have moved. So in that sense, that's correct. But the reality is that if if you're a if you're a fund manager, a private asset fund manager, it's not like you're you're putting your ears over your your hands over your ears and ignoring what's going on in in listed markets. And so you're definitely taking that into consideration when you're thinking about how how you should value your your assets. I mean, the one thing that's particularly different in or your unique to VC is just the high growth rates. And so if you're in a business that you know while the market might have come off, pick a number fifty percent uh, for your specific asset, 
if in the meantime you've tripled growth, well, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you come to a valuation and, and you know, super complicated in a in a very you know if you're in a pre-revenue super early stage business where the quantitative factors which drive your valuation are more sparse at the end of the day you know if you're a private equity or venture capital manager at the end of the day the thing that matters is actually the underlying portfolio company so if you're in if you're in a in a business that can increase its prices relatively easily as inflation uh, as interest rates increase you know, on a, especially on a relative basis relative to your peers, then you're going to be, generally speaking, in a much better position than some of your peers that can't. But, you know, having said that, on the flip side, if you're in an early stage business, generally speaking, your labour costs relative to, to the amount of revenue that you're producing are, are incredibly high. And so, you know, if the effect of, of increased interest rates and inter- increased inflation is that uh, there's a, a massive increase in the cost of labour, then, then those, those type of businesses are going to be you know, under a lot of pressure and um, you know, their burn levels going to increase as a result. And you've actually said um, off the record to us, basically the quality of businesses that we're seeing in Australia and New Zealand has actually improved by over a thousand percent as a venture investor. So you mentioned the Adobe acquisition of Figma. Could you elaborate a little bit further on, on that? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's obviously, it just really goes to the broader economic environment and the, the importance of, of venture capital and the value of the assets that you're investing in is that, you know, in Australia, since we've been a fund in Australia, like the, if you look back, you know, 10 years ago, the quality of the opportunities and the, the ecosystem was a totally, totally different place. Like now it's pretty cool to go into a startup or to into VC, whereas back then, you know, you'd have a conversation with someone and you'd say, hey, I work in venture capital. And the first question they'd say is, oh, is that property? And say, no, it's not property. And so, you know, that whole world has changed. And fortunately, there's been enough time since a decent number of funds here have been able to raise decent leaks of committed capital. And so for new new students entering university, that has actually been a real real career path option for them rather than, hey, you know, I'm going to go do my finance degree and then go get a job at a bank or a professional services firm and a lot of them, whatever it might be. Actually, hey, I can go create something from now and there might actually be some some money there to help help me make this, you know, realise uh, the, the opportunity. I mean, so, the, and, you know, the Adobe Figma deal, you know, I don't know exact numbers, but you know, it's done at sort of 50x forward multiple or something like that. I think it just goes to show that even in a in a down market, if you create a, a business that's got incredible traction, an incredible product, uh, and you know, is strategically important to a potential existing incumbent, that you can extract huge amounts of value for for that for that business. That's really interesting. So essentially, in the VC space, you do try and ignore the short-term noise, I suppose, that's going on in the macro. I mean, not ignore it completely, but kind of look at the underlying business that you're actually investing in. So with that being said, are you quite bullish, I guess, looking at your VC pipeline? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about your pipeline, there's probably a few different factors or aspects to that. There's your pipeline of new incoming deals, and then there's uh, your sort of your your pipeline of your existing businesses that you're managing that you either want to get uh you want to increase your staking you want to get more capital into or there's the ones where you're sort of more in the management phase where you might be wanting to bring in uh new third party led capital or or those that you might uh wanting to be to realizing 
given that valuations uh, and you know terms are down, you know that definitely lends itself more to being you know to deploying capital rather than you know if you know if if we're in a business that we think is a great business uh, at the moment, you know you can't necessarily get the best model for it. Then you know those type of businesses it probably makes sense from an IRS perspective to be to be staying in those businesses and realizing them in you know whatever the, the period might be and continuing to to invest in the growth of the business. So with your current portfolio, do you find that at the moment you're adding a larger stake for a lot of the businesses? And I guess also, how many businesses do you actually see a week? You know, how many businesses are coming across your table? Each week, it's probably 30 to 50 that we review. Wow, that many. That's a lot. Yeah, so we've got a pretty, because you see so many, we've got a pretty good process. I think we're quite unique in this approach, but we do a, um, for every single member of the investment team from, you know, senior founding partner all the way down to the new intern, uh, we go and independently blind review every single opportunity. And we then have a, you know, in-house developed proprietary scoring model that we use just as a way to sort of not to make a decision, but just to prioritise which investments we think are, are interesting. So we blind score everything and then come together and compare our scores and then debate that every week and go, okay, cool, where are the ones where we've all either scored it really highly, let's invite them in to come and you know, pitch us either virtually or in person, and where are the ones where we've got a massive divergence where, you know, someone might be saying, hey, this is super interesting, or, you know, other person might be saying, oh, this is, we've got no interest in this. Well, you know, let's look at those and understand, you know, why that might be. And it's just basically trying to elicit different views on, on where our market might go and question our thinking all the time and make sure, you know, just because age is, is often a super useful thing in that, especially when it's a consumer-facing product, if you've got more younger members of the staff who might be more in touch with the, the applications of a, a specific uh, piece of technology, then, you know, their view and their input on on that product is super valuable. Yeah, that's really interesting insights, Damien. Thank you for that. Just a quick one there, Damien. On that process, because I found that really insightful, do you have to have a unanimous decision with your investment team? Just, just to be clear, that's not that's not an investment decision process. Oh, okay. That's just a way to prioritise. The deal plan. You know, you get 30 to 50, you can't, you just don't practically have enough time in the week to take, you know, a a 45-minute pitch. That's who will come in the office, who they'll let in the office. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to think about it is a bit of a funnel where you, a lot of opportunities come in the top of the funnel. Uh, so maybe, yeah, 30, 50. You've then got to prioritise which ones you think are worthwhile diving deeper into. And it's probably only 5% of the opportunities that are coming in that we're actually taking a pitch. Right. And then from then we get into sort of further, you know, deeper stages of diligence to ultimately we get to a point of, of, of making an investment. Okay, that's great. That Thanks for clarifying for us. That's right. That's when they decide to go into the data room, <laughs> the deep, dark data room. So we've actually covered off a lot this morning already, but we want to move into re- your recent investment decisions the fund has made and hear some exciting businesses that you're keen on because that is what our listeners love. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And we're back. Alrighty, let's get into the exciting part of our conversation that we want to have with you, Damien. So let's talk about... Not that the rest wasn't exciting. But no, definitely not. <laughs> but this is where it's like the nitty gritty, finer details. This is where we get to learn some exciting new businesses, you know, that might be coming across our screens as listed companies in five, 10 years. Who knows, right? So, so within the fund, right, you've mentioned you've had three or four now. Can you give us a few couple of examples of recent investments you've made what sectors they're in, and I guess why they're bullish. And if you can list the company as well, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, no problems. I'm always happy to, to talk about uh, the companies. So one that we're in the AFR for this week uh, was an investment in a business called Path Zero. Um, so that, that business, Path Zero, provides software to enable businesses to measure their carbon emissions. And then from that, they can form a reduction plan, buy offsets, come net zero, uh, and then actually apply to, to various certifying bodies. You know, in Australia, the major one is, is Climate Active. You know, why we really like this space, uh, why I like this uh, business is, is really the industry tailwinds and it's a sort of shift towards ESG. But you know, we also at the same time recognise that, that it's a reasonably competitive space and there's lots of startups doing, taking lots of different approaches to this, to this problem. You know, why we like Part Zero over its competitors is, is really about its approach to to scale and so their approach they're taking is very much focusing on on later stage private equity funds and, and their portfolio and so how the how the platform works is it appeals to the investors in a, in a private equity fund so the lps who sit at the top those investors are under immense pressure to be able to firstly before they can even reduce just be able to understand what the carbon emissions are across their entire portfolio and so by engaging them they're able to then put pressure on the gps or the actual managers of the of the private equity assets who then in turn are able to put pressure below them onto each of the underlying assets themselves. You know, why we like that approach is, is something called K-factor in, in venture capital land, and, and that's the idea of the viral potential of a, a particular product. And so usually when people talk about K-factor, it's usually about a, a consumer-facing app. But, you know, this has shown that it's actually applicable to a B2B SaaS business as well. And so you can imagine the LP at the top, they want to be able to report and understand and measure their carbon emissions. They put a lot of pressure down on the GP level. The GP themselves, for their own business, have huge amounts of carbon emissions from their own activities, things like professional services, travel, accommodation, all that sort of thing. But then below them, they have each of their portfolio companies as well. So they push it down to the portfolio companies. And so the portfolio companies themselves will then have to go through and look at all their different carbon emitting uh, sources. Um, and so very quickly, you see this big spider web of growth. And so for, by acquiring one customer at the top, you're actually acquiring 10, 20, 30 different customers below. And we see this as a as a, a super efficient way of, of of growing the business and hopefully we'll create a viral loop in in, the, in a very short period of time. Another business, uh, business called Cascade Strategy, uh, that was one that we funded uh, originally last year, but we just doubled down on uh, reasonably heavily this year. It provides software to enable businesses to effectively manage their internal strategy. So within like a, a medium to a large uh, size organization. Now, I like that this business is, is really about the product and the pain point that it's solving. So the way lots of strategies strategies within an organization are currently um, managed, you know, are often incredibly siloed and disparate. And as a result, lots of internal strategies ultimately fail. So by creating software that, that unifies, uh, enables uh 
people in the organization to plan and track how the strategic activities are going is super useful and just uh, increases the chance of a strategy succeeding or at least being able to measure why it failed um, in a much more material way. It also has value all throughout the 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 chain of users of the product. So if you're at the top, if you're a senior executive, uh, being able to go and track how across each of your, your, your separate business units, how everyone is progressing, whether you're, you know, you're, you're over here on the left or if you're uh, you know, direct core business, how that's all going to be able to track that is super useful. But actually, if you're further down the chain, super useful as well, because if you know, hey, I'm doing this task, whereas in the past, you've just have been told by a manager you have to do this task, you don't really know why you're doing it. Being able to look at the broad strategic objectives of the business throughout the, to use the, the name of the business, the cascading strategy within the business, you can very, very much understand, hey, I'm doing this activity. This is a, a foundational building block to this, this theme, which it makes up uh, a broader part of the, the strategy. And, you know, besides that, also the business has just got incredible growth, traction, and given that it's applicable to pretty much any corporate globally that has a strategy, which is pretty much any company. Yeah. Um, it's got a very, very large addressable market. So just on Cascade Strategy, that sounds um, really interesting, but I don't know that space very well. But my first thought process was, you know, does Salesforce do anything like that? Like what is the competitive landscape in that scene? It's because the word strategy is quite broad. There's quite a lot of SaaS businesses that play that are in some ways indirect competitors. The way Cascade is approaching it is, is quite unique. So, yeah, so I mean, that's often quite a, a common theme in, in venture capital investments you see where you turn up, to, someone turns up and pitches you and says, hey, we've got this product, we're totally different from uh, every other product under the sun and we're unique and we're great. But the reality is that the pool from the, the customer's perspective, the pool of capital that they're using to, to actually fund that to them, they see them as competitive to other, other pieces of software or, you know, they've only got budget for a certain amount of software. And so they're maximizing, you know, based on their priorities, what they think is, is the best use of, of that budget. And so Cascade's definitely, definitely in that sense. But I'd say, you know, they're quite unique in, in the approach that they're taking and, and really targeting strategy versus other forms of intra-company communication and, and, and planning. And when you do look at these companies right for investment, do you look at a minimum revenue that needs to be coming in to actually invest in these companies or what kind of um, benchmarks do you have here? Business by business, like we're quite early stage, so we're happy to go pre-revenue into the right type of business. But, you know, if you're in a B2B SaaS business where it's it's hard to really imagine, you know, what product market fit might be like without evidence of, of traction, then, then for sure we'd like to see more revenue. But, you know, that doesn't have to be huge, huge numbers of revenue. But for us, it's just all about getting confidence around product to market fit. Amazing. So all these talk money to me is if you've got some great ideas, Damien is happy to have a look pre-revenue. Seriously, that's that's not that's not that's nothing nothing to be sneezed at. My my email is Damien carbonocapital.com so feel free to shoot through anything and we'll make sure everyone on the team takes a look at it yeah you never know honestly you never know what's the next big idea um so i guess staying on this positive theme what other areas or thematics are you really excited about at the moment and the team's excited about yeah so i mean expanding a little bit on the path zero idea this idea of you know that that's very carbon emissions focused but but you know, thinking about ESG broadly, we've seen in Australia globally that the environmental considerations are having massive, massive impacts on things, even as far as elections. The rate of change that's expected of organisations become compliant with new ESG regimes as they as they emerge is getting quicker and quicker. 
and you know, one of the days where you can just simply, you know, at the end of your, your half yearly investor presentation, have an ESG slide and skim over it and say, oh, let's start, or, you know, have an ESG page on your website and just say, hey, cool, this is our ESG policy, and then feel like you're done. You know, increasingly, you're, you're going to have to measure how you comply with whatever ESG policy that, that, that might be deemed appropriate, you know, how measure how you're actually achieving that and then what your plan is, is to reduce that. And so, you know, we see it in a very short period of time. This is just going to be a cost of doing business. Uh, and it's non-trivial for a big incumbent corporation to be able to just very quickly start complying. You know, when you've done your business operations are set up in a certain way and your reporting has been set up in a certain way, it's very difficult to, to very quickly move to that new regime. And so, you know, any startup that can solve the problems of these incumbent businesses in a very unique, effective uh, way, it's going to have huge, huge tailwinds behind it. I also just sort of going back to some of our prior prior thoughts about uh, the current economic climate. I mean, old school, you know, what is what used to be, you know, un, you know, what was a couple of years ago very unsexy B two B SaaS businesses. You know, those that have a great product, great traction, great metrics, they're super super exciting in this environment. I mean, I think both from the point of view of if it, for for future fundraising, I think latest stage investors can very easily get their heads around, you know, unit economics of that type of business at scale. Um, so that helps. But it's also just really optionality. If, if you know, once you've got to a certain scale of being default alive, you've got a huge amount of option value there where, you know, if the funding market deteriorates in a material way from here, then you can very easily reduce burn, reduce your growth, um, extend your runway. But on the flip side, if market conditions come back, you can very quickly open up the taps again and go for growth again. And so I think that optionality is just super valuable in this, in this environment. I think that's really exciting because there are huge concerns, right, that we've heard from various uh, fund managers and various specialists that the decarbonisation goals of Paris 2030 aren't going to be met. So it is great that you guys are investing in companies that are potentially, you know, helping with those goals. Yes, that- that's a plan, and and you know you know it's it's also great to have you know so much support from you know our institutional investors who who are very much aligned on the objectives as well. So you know it's it's great and very exciting area. And just one comment there, um, if we can just depack it a bit more with you, Damien. You mentioned if funding was to dry up. So what is that catalyst? What's that big oh oh moment that you think may or may not happen in the in the markets to really suck out more innovation in the VC markets in the next? you know, two to three years? Yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to those pools of capital that are being raised. If those investors go, hey, we don't want to invest, like we're just going to rather just sit, even though we've got five years to blow this capital, we'd rather just sit on that capital and, and not deploy it or only deploy it in very, very specific, very restricted means. You know, given that we're investing in early stage entrepreneurs, you know, one big solution to that is always you know, growth sort of tends to be a solution to, to a lack of capital. So, you know, there's plenty of businesses in there in their careers that are built you know, massive, massive, massive businesses without even taking a dollar for investment. So, um, you know, in that sense, you know, if you can if you can get in the early stage and, and back those those businesses, you know, that's a great sign. But I think realistically, we have to have a pretty serious like you know, bigger than GFC financial meltdown uh, where people, where all investors just lost all confidence and said, hey. Our fundamental business is gone. We're not going to start investing in businesses. So, I, you know, I'm not too stressed. Not too stressed about that being a thing. I think it's more a question of you know people's propensity to continue to write the same check sizes. Um, you know, the the speed at which they're deploying. You know, and therefore that ultimately comes back to the chances of you as a business getting getting funded. I think I think it's more of that type of conversation than uh, oh, everyone just sits on their on their, their hands and doesn't deploy. 
I was just thinking maybe we stress test talk money to me as a business, get Damien's thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. Um, all right, so that's the positive. What about the negative? Uh, what other areas or segments are kind of keeping you up at night? Have you made any bad investments? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the areas that we luckily don't have too many in our portfolio, we don't have any in our portfolio, um, but the areas that I worry most about uh, are those that uh, have been sort of masquerading as a, as a tech business. So businesses where, you know, they might have a technology front end or they might be really smart in the way they, they uh, acquire customers using technology. And so they've been able to successfully grow faster than their direct immediate, you know, traditional peers. And so... Yes, they should be rewarded for that. And yes, they should trade in a higher growth model than their, their existing peers. But that doesn't necessarily mean that when they get to scale, that they're actually, you know, they've got the same EBITDA margins as, as, a, as, a, as a SaaS business. And so, you know, a, a great example of this is, you know, maybe like a, an asset leasing business or something like that. That's got a really, really smart way using technology of acquiring customers. And so they're growing really, really faster and, you know, doing a great job. You know, that doesn't mean that when they're a $100 billion company, that the unit economics of that business is akin to that of a, an equivalent $100, $100 billion SaaS business. You know, another great example is, is delivery businesses. So, you know, they've received a lot of funding from a lot of VCs over, you know, both domestically and, and internationally. And, you know, if you can solve the, the delivery problem through some really smart form of technology, you know, obviously Amazon's right down the path of, of, of drone delivery, but, you know, if you can solve that bit for sure, you know, that, that is a technology business, but, you know, if at the end of the day you can acquire customers, you can, you've got a really good app that people use that, that is really convenient, that's great. But at the end of the day, if, if, you know, someone still needs to physically get in their car and deliver the product to you, well, that, that business is going to be constrained by, by those type of operations. And so, you know, it could be a really, really good business and could be doing really, really well, but, you know, it's going to, at scale, shouldn't be trading on the same level as a, as a tech business. Gosh, how far away are we from drone deliveries, do you think? Oh, that would be cool. Are you investing in anything like that? <laughs> I mean, the good thing the good thing is, you know, Amazon, you know, it's, it's hard for businesses like that to emerge funded by, yeah, especially in environments like this, to be funded uh, by venture capital. Um, but, you know, there's plenty of investments that have been made in that space. Uh, this business is called uh, Zipline that does uh, delivery in the, in, uh, in Africa of, like, um, you know, at need, like, medical supplies and things like this. There's heaps of businesses that have tried to, to go down that sort of path. Ultimately, my gut says it's going to be someone like Amazon that... It's going to win that race. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've got the capital behind them uh, and they've got the distribution and they've got the infrastructure and uh, they're happy to, you know, if you're funded by VCs and you tear up 50 million bucks and don't achieve much, then, you know, the business is basically dead. But at Amazon, if you, you have a little bit of a misstep, but the corporate vision is still to, you know, that piece of delivery of, uh, is seen as is key to the, the broader strategic objective of the business, then, then you know, you're going to continue to invest in that area. So, you know, and plus you know, Amazon is just known for being very innovative for thinking business. So I feel like that's going to be their space. I mean, I think it's already happening, right? Delivery is already happening in the US. So I don't think it'll be very far. It could take us, take them a while to, to build the infrastructure in Australia. And there's certainly plenty of challenges around actually accepting delivery, uh, as well as just regulations about the drones flying around this, uh, for sure. I, you know, I think, I think we'll get over that hurdle and there'll be some, there'll be some smart way to do it. So speaking on valuation, you know, Amazon is known as one of those stocks that always does have a high multiple. So we've seen obviously valuation PEs come off in the listed space, but how can I guess investors trust evaluation put on a private business? You know, I thought uh, thinking back to Canva, they did a down raise, right, in their valuation uh, only recently. So 
Any thoughts on that? Do you think that's going to be a trend as we go into potentially this recession that the market's pricing in? You know, thoughts on really the trust on evaluation in the private sector? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, Campbell is a great example of that getting played out in the, in the media a couple of months ago where, where there was lots of questions around whether that was the appropriate valuation to be applying. You know, we're not an investor in Canberra, you know, on that specifically, like there's some really smart investors in there and, and by the sounds of things, like business is continuing to grow at a, at a rate of not. So, you know, I don't really have a strong opinion on, on, on that. But, you know, first and foremost, you know, I'm not sure that people necessarily appreciate that because we've got institutional capital behind us, we have to go through a pretty rigorous auditing process every year. And, you know, we're only, we haven't even completed. We're only just coming out the back of our auditing process for, for 30 June. It's, there's also complexity in, in how valuation and how, what, at what value you hold each, each round of investment that you do. So because venture capital is fundamentally private capital means that there's different terms for each round of investment that you do. And so, you know, you know an example of, of uh, downside protection terms that people often have is, is one is a liquidation preference right and another is an anti-dilution type mechanism. And so what ends up happening is that even though a business might be valued at a certain headline valuation, the reality is that if the tranche or the, 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 the round of capital that you've put in has some form of downside protection, even though the, the, the value of the business might have gone down, your holding might still be you know, at cost. And so you can imagine when you've got done multiple different investment rounds over different periods of time, each round with different terms, you have a very complicated waterfall structure of, of how that capital, if the business was to be sold at that valuation, how the capital would be returned to investors. And so you know, when you've got, you know, in our case, sort of 40 or 50 uh, portfolio companies and each of them you've done, you know, one to five rounds of investment into them, it gets very complicated very, very quickly. And so, you know, I just want to highlight that, that we all do spend a lot of time going through each line of every single thing with the auditors and having to justify why we've come to that valuation. And they will, they will, you know, take apart and say, well, look, here's, here's a, here's a comparable list of comp. You've, you've held this at this price. You know, why do you think that's appropriate? We have to justify it with, with comps, but then also referring back to the progress that the business has, has taken. I think, you know, Fundamentally, we're not incentivized to mark up things or mark down things. At the end of the day, we get paid when we realize cash. So, you know, ultimately, it's about the IRR that you get. And so, if a venture fund is consistently marking up or, you know, undermarking or overmarking, well, that's only going to be, you know, that's only going to make you look like you're one in close, you're in touch with your, your investment to your, your investors at that point in time. So, of course. And I think I want to just quickly mention that one of your successful investments was actually Life360. That's one that Candice and I have followed quite closely. So that's very exciting to see and that you actually have won the Venture Capital Investment Awards in 2019. Uh, so thank you so much for those comments, Damien. It's been a really interesting episode. We have one final, very important question. Candice, what is it? You ready? This is the toughest part of the whole chat. Coffee, tea, or tequila? Coffee. <laughs> Straight away. No hesitation. That was easy. I hate tequila. Oh, really? Oh, you hate tequila. Definitely not a tea man, although, I, like, you know, I love, to, I love to think I was a tea man, but uh, really, realistically, I'm definitely a coffee man. When I was living in the States, it was probably the worst part of living over there. It was just the coffee. <laughs> the coffee being so bad. That's true. And you're going to need a lot of coffee if you're looking at about 40 different companies a week. Uh, that is a lot. Well, thank you so much, Damien. It's been great. Uh, really, really appreciate it, guys. Thanks very much for having me. 
Well, that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Damien Fox from Cathona Capital. It was great to get a deep dive and his insights into the private markets because, you know, the listed market gets a lot of press, but the private market is just as important. So it's good to know his insights there. For me, you know, personally, I love chatting with experts in different fields. Like I didn't know what the K factor was. So I learned something new today, which is essentially like he explained, it's the hyper growth business model that um, is really attractive to VC investors and anything in the tech space in particular that just goes viral very quickly is essentially how I understood the definition of the K factor. So with that, guys, we're going to sign off. But before we do, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoreham Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice, nor is it a financial product. As always, you should go out and seek your own professional advice and do your own research before you make your investment decisions. And everything that we spoke about is factual at the time of recording being the 25th of October. 2022. I know, don't say that. My life is flashing before my eyes. And make sure you follow us on at Talk Money to Me podcast for daily market updates. There's been a lot of scammers at the moment, so please triple check the spelling. We also won't be contacting you directly, so it's definitely not us um, sending you inboxes telling you about trades um, and crypto trades. We don't do that. We don't know anything about it, so it's definitely not going to be us. So just triple check the spelling because there's going to be a lot more scammers, said Sasha. (laughs) So not good. Not good. Also, please give us a nice review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. If you've got any questions or want to talk to us at all, tmtm at equitymates.com. And if you want to check out the Cathone fund, go to www.carthonacapital.com because there's some really interesting information on their website. Until next time. See you next time. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the EquityMates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, EquityMates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.